This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. you see her. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here again at the London Buddhist Centre. I'm on a kind of Dharma tour at the moment. Last Wednesday I gave a talk in Brighton and on Wednesday I'm going to give a talk in Brixton and I'm doing a few other things. So it's it's great. It's um, a sort of intensive uh, touring uh, period uh, by English standards, not by <laughs> Indian standards, where you might give four lectures in a day at least uh, on some days. Anyway, it's it's pretty good. And yes, I'm delighted to be part of uh, your seminar on uh, the taste of freedom. Uh, this lecture that Sangharachita uh, gave, actually, I think it was the early eighties. I think, I think. Uh, and yes, I was there. Uh, it was in a in a big hall in central London. I can't remember which one. My memory is that it was really packed. It was, there was a lot of people there. And my memory of the lecture was, was that it was magisterial. That's the, that's the word that came, comes to mind. It was a classic uh, exposition of a Buddhist text. Um, and with, with, with real um, you know, scholarship, um, inspiration, imagination, and also bringing out a, a, a whole new way of looking at uh, some central Buddhist teachings, particularly the, the breaking of the three fetters, uh, which when you break those three fetters, you, 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 you enter the stream uh, that leads to uh, nirvana. Uh, that's, that's, that's my memory of that. I've been rereading uh, the lecture and uh, as often happens with reading uh, my teacher, um, there are many, many things that, that I hadn't noticed uh, and which uh, really struck me uh, rereading uh, the, 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 the lecture in, in the book. A more vivid memory is actually studying it with him sometime in the early 2000s, I think, or mid-2000s at Padmaloka, where I live, the retreat centre where I live. For some reason, we decided to go through a number of lectures that he'd done in the 70s and 80s, and one of these was The Taste of Freedom. And my memory of that, the, the thing that I most remember about that, at that time, he, it was very different because he was much older, he was going blind, um, much frailer, and uh, we'd sit, uh, the, the older members, uh, reading the text and talking, and in some ways he didn't... He didn't say very much, it's my memory. He'd just sort of put in things from, from time to time. And there was a particular moment that I, I vividly remember. I looked through my notes of the seminar the other day, and, um, but, you know, and there's some very striking things in it, but it was this moment uh, where we were talking about this word freedom. And in the lecture, he says he's using the word freedom as a translation of the Pali word vimutti, the Sanskrit word vimukti, uh, which 
really has a very, very specific meaning. It, it doesn't have a sort of sense in traditional Buddhist language of, of freedom as, as we might understand it in the modern age. You know, we, we might be talking about freedom in terms of uh, social and political freedom and so on and so forth. The, the meaning of vimukti was the way he wanted, the traditional meaning of the, way, uh, of the word vimukti was what he was really exploring in the lecture, The Taste of Freedom. And in this moment, he was saying that vimukti was really synonymous with nirvana, with enlightenment itself, because it is complete liberation from the round of birth and death. It's complete liberation from the reactive mind. It's complete liberation from what we call the samsara. It's complete liberation from greed, hatred and delusion. And he stopped, he sort of stopped the discussion and said, perhaps what we really need to do is contemplate vimukti as this complete liberation. And we just all went silent. And it was as if he, if he started to meditate as we were sitting there. And I had the sense that he was really contemplating the nature of vimukti. And we were getting a sort of sense of that, that this is something that vimukti, freedom in this profoundly Buddhist sense, is if you like something to revere, uh, something to uh, look up to, something not to take for granted. Actually, it's one of the big themes of the, of the lecture when you read it, is not taking things for granted. Uh, really not taking anything for granted, especially the Dharma, especially um, your Buddhist practice and the Buddhist teaching. But uh, in that moment, I realised that uh, he, th these words really meant something for him in a way that they don't, which, don't, which they don't mean for me, uh, vimukti. I was in contact with a man who had a sense of what full, complete, total liberation uh, really is, although he would make no claim uh, for that. So I want to um, approach uh, vimukti, uh, liberation, freedom. Vimukti can be translated as freedom, liberation, emancipation. Sometimes it's translated as salvation, as release. You get the general idea. I want to approach it in a bit of a different way from uh, the lecture. I hope um, you'll get back on track uh, uh, next week. Um, I'm going to perhaps take you on a little detour. Um, yes, vimukti. Vimukti. It's so uh, crucial in uh, Buddhist texts throughout the entire uh, Buddhist tradition. In the Udana, the text which, um, which uh, uh, the, the, the story that Sangharachita comments on in the lecture the, from the same collection, the Udana opens with the Buddha seated immediately after his great enlightenment for periods of seven days and seven nights in one, in one posture without moving, experiencing, or enjoying is a better word, enjoying the bliss of liberation, the sukha vimoksha, the bliss of liberation, just enjoying that, savouring that, relishing that, 
the Buddha had made all that effort to gain full and complete enlightenment. Everything, everything in him, as it were, had flowed over the edge, if you like, had just poured over into uh, the open dimension of being, as, as some translators call it, into that vast space. So then there just opens up the bliss of liberation, the, the enjoyment, the savouring of this unbounded, inconceivably unbounded, well, you can't really call it a state of being. You know, we really are out of language. So that's right early on uh, in uh, the, the origins of, of Buddhism, is this bliss of liberation. I was very struck by what Kyanavachu was saying uh, in his announcements, this union, if you like, of, 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 of pleasure and meaning. Well, there you have it right at the origins of Buddhism. You have liberation, if you like, representing, as it were, meaning, and you have bliss, uh, utter bliss, and they are fully fused. They are yuganada, as they call it in Tantric Buddhism, two in one, uh, inseparable, the bliss of liberation. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's, it's so important in, in, in Buddhist teaching Again, in the 19, uh, a bit before the Taste of Freedom lecture, Sangharakshita gave a series of lectures on a very famous Mahayana Sutra. That's a later Buddhist tradition called the Vimalakirti Nidesha, the exposition of Vimalakirti, which he called the inconceivable emancipation. Same word, vimukti, vimoksha. Uh, achintya vimoksha. Achintya means inconceivable, unthinkable, uh, non, you're not able to put into any kind of concepts. That sutra is all about the inconceivable liberation of the Bodhisattva. So there's a whole series of lectures on that whole theme, and it's a magical theme. I might say something a bit more about it later or touch on it in some way. One of the things I remember in that, in that lecture series he pointed out that, Sangharachita pointed out, that actually any liberation is inconceivable. Any liberation. Because you can see liberation uh, in Buddhist training as a progression. We move from small liberations to ultimate uh, liberations. Uh, but we, we, don't, we don't know what liberation is like until it happens. Because we're so in bondage, in thrall, we're so imprisoned in our usual way of seeing things and experiencing things, we only know what liberation is like when it happens. And that is inconceivable to us when we're in that state of boundedness, boundedness. So every liberation is inconceivable. Uh, very interesting uh, insight. And I want to sort of look at this sort of topic of liberation, freedom, vimukti, the taste of freedom, um, vimukti rasa, uh, which the Buddha says is the taste of the Dharma. You know it's real uh, Buddhist teaching and training and practice if it has the taste, the direct, immediate taste of liberation, just as the ocean, you know it's the ocean because it has the taste of salt. 
in the same way you know it's the Dharma, you know it's the Buddha's teaching, if it has the flavour, the taste, the direct, immediate taste of liberation or freedom. Um, I want to look at this topic by looking at a teaching uh, and sort of expanding that teaching a little bit, which shows, if you like, the, the conditions needed for liberation, if you like. Uh, there might even be some sort of progression in this to deeper or higher or greater uh, liberations. So I want to explore that, I hope, in a way that's, uh, that's practical and, and meaningful to you, that speaks uh, to you. Um, there's uh, another sutta from this collection called the Udana, uh, called the Megya Sutta. I won't go into the whole of the sutta. Um, but in that particular sutta, the Buddha teaches to the monk who has sort of come a cropper in his spiritual life because he's, he's been very individualistic and grabby, trying to do a smash-and-grab raid on the Absolute and <laughs> leaving uh, the Buddha, who, and he's the attendant of, of the Buddha, and the Buddha has you know, asked him not to or doesn't really want him to go away, he needs help but he wants to go off and you know, meditate and gain enlightenment and all that. And when he comes back having failed, the Buddha doesn't tick him off. He just gives this wonderful teaching. He says when the heart's liberation, the heart's release, the heart's freedom is immature, five things leads to its maturing. Five things lead to its maturing. This lovely, uh, this 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 lovely expression, uh, chitta vimoksha, chitta vimoksha. It's the same word again, vimoksha, vimukti. The the and chitta means heart or mind, both actually heart mind. Very hard to translate chitta consciousness, uh, us if you like. So when our liberation is immature and the word immature is is a translation of a of a lovely sanskrit word uh, paripachana paripachana can mean immature it can also mean uncooked uh, no sorry i've got that wrong paripachana means mature it can also mean cooked it can also mean cooked it can mean ripe so mature cooked ripe paripachana it's actually related to the contemporary, the modern Hindi word paka. Uh, paka means cooked or, or mature, uh, as opposed to kacha, which means uncooked or hard. And when I lived in India and I was with, with my Indian Buddhist friends, some of the older men, the sort of seasoned Dharma travellers that I would be uh, uh, on retreat with, uh, they'd be talking about some of the younger men and how they were getting on, and they'd say, oh, Padmavadra, he's kacha. He's kacha, he's not paka. He's uncooked, he's hard, he's not ripe, he's not mature, he's not seasoned, he's got a long way to go yet. So this is a lovely way of, of speaking of the spiritual life, that it's, it's, it's a maturing of the heart's liberation. Uh, it, it's making it soft, it's making it ripe, it's making it mature. It also has, of course, the connotation of growth, of, of, of development, uh, it has that sort of sense. So, in other words, freedom is something 
yes, it does have this ultimate significance of complete liberation from the wheel of life, but it's also a progress. I mean, you probably know this, don't you, from your own experience in life. You've had those moments of, of freedom where something has, has just really opened up. Your life has really opened up after feeling really closed down. You get it, actually, in, in the life of the Buddha. Uh, before he is enlightened, when he's still unenlightened. There's this wonderful little sutta, a little discourse called The, the Going Forth. Uh, it's a kind of hymn, a paean, if you like. Buddhist tradition says repeatedly, the fact that you are a human being is a tremendous liberation in itself. Um, we live in a world, and I think in a society, which seems, from what I can tell, to constantly tell us that we're in a bad place. You know, we're in a really bad place. I mean, there's Brexit, there's, you know, there's going to be absolutely catastrophic environmental disaster. Um, our politicians seem to be driving us into the abyss and so on and so on and so forth. It's very tempting to think that we're just in a state of lack. And of course, the consumer society is constantly telling us we need this new special thing. I was in I was in somebody's house the other day and they started talking, talking to the room. <laughs> talking to this person called Alexa. I wondered who they And then suddenly this music came on. I thought, wow, this is the ladies must have thing. I'm not criticising that, that's fine. But there seems to be this constant sort of sense that we are not enough. Whereas Buddhist, Buddhist tradition would say, hey, the precious human existence is already a major achievement. Because the precious human existence delivers us a consciousness which can actually reflect on our experience. We're not just in sense experience, just automatically responding. We have this quality of mind that, that doesn't need to just respond immediately. And because of that, we can practice Buddhist ethics. Uh, we can actually treat people with kindness and, and consideration. We can reflect that uh, when we behave in a certain way, we, we can impact on people uh, positively and negatively. We can even have a kind of, with this mind that we have, this reflexive mind, it does get us into difficulties, but if we link it up with a positive vision, um, we can even sort of conceive, if you like, or imagine or intuit that which lies beyond. We can conceive even of ultimate freedom. We can, because we're human beings, we can have this quality of shraddha that uh, Subhadramati spoke about, this sense of leaping over our present moment into seeing very naturally, very easily, not without any grasping, but having a vision of that which lies beyond and we can move towards. I think we can also reflect on the fact that we actually have relative, we have all sorts of freedoms and uh, all sorts of leisure, amazingly. I know you've all probably been working very hard in London today, but we do actually have the freedom and leisure to come to a Buddhist centre. Uh, we're not stopped from coming to a Buddhist centre. We have freedom of conscience. We can actually live according to how we want to live. Uh, we have the freedom to go on retreat. There are parts of the world. There are people who do not have those freedoms. So perhaps another way of developing a feeling of freedom, a greater sense of freedom, is in reflecting on what we have already. 
and meditating on that, letting that grow and develop, letting that heart's liberation grow and develop. But in this teaching to uh, this monk, whose name was, was Megia, the Buddha talked about five particular conditions which lead to the maturing of the liberation of the heart. And the first of these, he said, is, is Kalyanamitrata. This is a Sanskrit word meaning uh, something like, we usually translate it as spiritual friendship. Uh, friendship with those, um, well, I was going to say those we practice the Dharma with, but in a way that's far too prosaic. Kalyana means beautiful, auspicious, it means good, it means that which conduces to the skillful. So it's in other words, friendships which draw out the very deepest and best in us. Friendships, you could say, which have the taste of liberation, that have the taste of freedom. Uh, people that we can be with, that we can meet uh, regularly and easily, the Buddha says in this teaching, you get it at ease. Uh, it's available to you. Friendships which really bring that out in you, which encourage an expansive heart, which encourage an expansive uh, life in you, not that cramping that doesn't sort of push you back. They might become friendships as they develop and deepen, uh, which might even be quite challenging, even quite pokey when, you're, when your friend notices that you're moving back into habits and behaviours which are leading to that cramping and that, that closing down. Uh, so they're friends that, that are encouraging you to move in the direction and of, of freedom and liberation. I was reflecting on why, there are many reasons why uh, the Buddha places this not just first, but he says it's the basis for all of these teachings that I'm going to mention, that, that everything comes out of friendship, everything comes out of having friends like these, being a friend like this. And in a way, what, the, the why is sort of obvious. And it, it's to do with the fact that you want to be around people who to some extent embody freedom. They might not be fully free like the Buddha was. I mean, that's why the Buddha was so attractive and why people wanted to be around him. Because people sensed that he was unbounded, that he was liberated, that he was living that open life and was completely uh, open and even-handed with whoever he communicated with. That's why people wanted to be with him and be, be around him. We pick up so much from other people. Other people influence us so powerfully uh, for good or ill. And of course, we in turn influence other people so powerfully. So the first thing we have to do in a life dedicated to the progression of freedom is to be with people who encourage that, that, that life of freedom, that life of liberation. And that we even start encouraging that in others as well. Um, it's a really good sort of test, I think, of the quality of what we call the spiritual community, the community of people who come together to practice Buddhism. Does it have the taste, the direct, immediate flavour of freedom and liberation? If it's oppressive, then something's wrong. 
Maybe you're not seeing people properly. Maybe you're projecting authority uh, onto them. Maybe you're seeing the order members as sort of priests with their white cases or something like that who are going to tell you off or whatever. Um, and might be that. Or maybe there is something not quite right. Maybe there isn't that sense of freedom you know, that, that's pervading uh, the community. I mean, sometimes... You know, friends of mine, you know, old acquaintances, you know, come to me and they're sort of finding things really difficult within our Sangha and our community. And after so many years of that going on, I have to say, well, think you think you ought to try something else? If that, maybe there's something off here and, you know, or it's not working for you. Uh, or maybe there's an attitude that isn't quite right. Maybe you're a bit passive. Maybe you're not trying to be a friend enough because there's something in befriending itself which is incredibly liberating. And it's related, I think, to generosity. You know, when you take that first step uh, to be generous to somebody, to reach out to somebody in friendship and care and kindness, it's a wonderful moment of freedom in that. Some people I know are quite frightened and quite nervous in human relationship. Maybe they've been let down very badly in the past, maybe early on, and the idea of opening up to somebody in an ordinary friendly way is itself really uh, challenging well it's a tremendous feeling of freedom when you do that you know when you meet when you take that that risk if you like with 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 one another so first a spiritual friendship the community of friends uh, and developing that that's that's the ground for the maturing of the liberation of the heart the next thing the buddha talks about you know, I'm going to give you an old translation of it. Uh, uh, he, he, the, 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 when the heart's liberation is immature, what you need next is the restraint of the obligations. Lovely kind of Victorian translation. Um, it's sangvara shila is the word, which is, sangvara means something like commitment. And shila is ethical practice. So it's commitment this comes in. After a certain amount of time, when you started getting more deeply into Buddhist practice, there comes a point where you need to have no doubt, where you need to take a leap and commit yourself to the path. It's very interesting with freedom. We often think that freedom means... I don't know if you remember, I think it was during the Labour government. Oh, no, it wasn't just the Labour government, it was the Tory government as well. It's all governments. They, they kind of go on about choice. You know, when you go, you know, to your hospital, you know, when you're getting health treatment, choice. I thought, I don't want choice. I just want to be told what to do and be helped in the best possible way by people who know what they're doing. Choice confuses me. Uh, but we think that we associate freedom very, very strongly with choice, don't we? That we, you know, and in the end, you start keeping all your options open. You even do that with getting onto a spiritual path, or I'll try a bit of this, bit of Buddhism, bit of Hinduism, bit of Sufism, bit of Christianity, or maybe a bit of therapy. Just, let's just, just, just let's let's just do it all, and surely. If you do all of it, you'll gain enlightenment and become one with God. And but I don't think it works like that. That's not not, not you could try it. You know, do do have a go and tell me if it works. But from what I've been able to observe, there comes a point where you really need to decide. 
actually, this is my path. And there is a tremendous freedom in that. Obviously, you can only do that when you're ready to do that. That can't be imposed. Uh, it can't be insisted upon by other people. It has to come from your heart. You sense that, ah, this is the path that I need to give myself to as fully and as completely as possible and to commit to this course of behaviour, these practices, these ethical practices, this perspective uh, on life. There can be a tremendous freedom in that. Uh, you, you sometimes see it in, uh, perhaps you've, when you've been meditating, you know, there's one of the hindrances is doubt and indecision. Doubt and indecision, you know, and vagueness. You know, you sit down and you start doing the mindfulness of breathing. I'm not sure if that's the right one now. Maybe I should do the metabath. Oh, no, no, after, you know, this is after a few minutes with each one. No, ah, oh, I need to just relax. Oh, no, hang on. You know, and you don't give yourself to anything. So you, you're getting tighter and tighter and more and more wound up. Of course, what you've got to do is, yes, you do have to relax. And you have to sink down. You have to acknowledge what sort of state you're in and make a clear commitment to a particular course of mind training in that, in that context. So there's nothing wrong with, with commitment. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's highly desirable uh, as, as part of the, the, the process of the maturing of the liberation of the heart. I've certainly have, have, have not have seen that over the years. You know, people who've really given themselves to a particular course of practice or to a particular project, you can see them expanding through that. They don't narrow. It looks as though they're... They, 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 there's, they, to some people, that might seem that they're very narrow. Actually, they're not. They're becoming more and more expansive through that, through that commitment. The next uh, teaching that the Buddha gives, gives that is conducive to the liberation of the heart is, is it's very hard to put this into, um, in a few words. It, it's called talking the Dharma, talking the truth. Uh, the Buddha placed great store on this. He, he said to his disciples, when you're together, you do one of two things. You either keep the noble silence. You sit in deep silence. The silence not just of the tongue, but of the mind as well. Or you talk Dhamma, Dhamma Kata, uh, it's called in, in Pali, which can be described as a deep, searching exploration of the truth. So in a way, this is taking us back into the sort of Kalyanamitrata uh, territory, if you like, meeting to explore the nature of things very, very deeply. Not in theory, although theory has a place, not just in abstract theory, but reality in relation to your life, Dharma in relation to your life. This is what our Dharma study groups that you might have heard of really should be about a really authentic meeting everybody turning up wanting to discover the truth of things this is a very powerful uh, buddhist practice one of the things it starts to undo and explode is what are known as michar ditties wrong and limiting views false views about the nature of things habitual usually unconscious opinions about life that are very deeply held, but which actually form us into a very limited and defined shape. 
It can be, you know, really exciting being in a really good Dharma study group when you're having this deep discussion and also a bit scary when you find your cherished opinions that you've never really analysed exploding. Uh, exploding. It can also have a, there can also be a tremendous sense of ecstasy and discovery as you start breaking into new uh, dimensions of, of, of understanding, even of insight. So that quality of communication uh, needs to be there. The next teaching that the Buddha gives for the liberation of the heart is virya. Virya. This is uh, effort or energy. Uh, I'm going to look at... He particularly means by this meditation in the sense of the continuous stream of skillful, creative, expansive states of mind and the turning away from unskillful, limiting, bounded, reactive states of mind. Whether you're sitting in meditation or whether you're you know, walking, talking with people, whether you're working, this stream of higher uh, consciousness, it's, it's energy. Uh, much better to think of it of energy. Of course, you know, so in other words, one of the things that's going on as you go deeper into your Buddhist practice, as you have more of the taste of liberation, more of a sense of your heart becoming liberated, it's going to release a lot of energy. It's going to release a lot of uh, flowing energy which you can direct more fully into your life and into your uh, Buddhist practice. There are times when you're uh, practicing the Dharma, if you maybe even if you haven't been doing it for a very long time, where you can just feel ecstatic, you know, with that energy. It can just arise at any time. It's very joyful, uh, very flowing. It's darkeny uh, energy, if you like. Uh, it takes you uh, outside of yourself. Um, I think one of the things in relation to this is 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 the metta bhavana. Uh, meditation. I sometimes think it, it's better to think of metabhavna meditation as the development, if you like, of loving energy. I know that might sound terribly new agey, but loving energy, but or love energy, maybe that's better. Um, <laughs> this thing is about metta. What, what you're aiming for is liberation. Uh, Sangharakshita said on one occasion, metta is ecstatic. Love is ecstatic. All-embracing, loving-kindness is ecstatic. Ec ecstasy, uh, it comes from, from the Greek, doesn't it? Ecstasis, to stand outside of yourself, to, to enter into the lives of others very, very positively, very, very positively. Your energy pervading, if you like, everybody around you. That's an incredibly ecstatic, blissful, rapturous, liberating, uh, emotion so energy that's that becomes part of the taste of liberation and finally he talks about the development of wisdom the development of knowing as Sangharachita said in this lecture on the taste of freedom freedom is not a blind thing that's a great aphorism freedom is not a blind thing so often the way the word freedom is used it becomes a slogan it sounds incredibly blind you know, it's almost like freedom at any cost, any cost to other people. But freedom is not a blind thing. 
Freedom comes out of knowledge as well as the chitta vimoksha, the liberation of the heart. There is the prajna vimoksha, the liberation through wisdom. Both need to be there. And the Buddha said, speaks very simply about the nature of wisdom in this teaching. It's the, the, the seeing of the rise and fall, the coming into being, the going out of being, seeing impermanence, in other words. Thing, things arise, they pass away. They arise, they pass away. And he says, when you, when you see that, that very, very simple but very profound insight into the nature of things, then you are really and truly irreversibly liberated because you, you see, well, there's nothing to stop continuous liberation, continuous uh, freedom. That really is then becoming uh, the taste of freedom. But I want, to, I want to end by just going back to the chitta, Vimoksha. There's another teaching set that says that the liberation of the heart is consists of the full development and the continuous unfoldment, the infinite unfoldment of metta, love, compassion, karuna, joy, sympathetic joy, joy in others' happiness, uh, extended to everybody. And upeksha or equanimity, which is when love, compassion, and joy are felt, are practiced, are experienced in relation to everybody without exception. Then there's real evenness, uh, real equanimity, real peace. You can also add to that set shraddha, faith, and bhakti, devotion, which is when your love. Uh, goes upwards, as it were, to uh, an image, uh, a vision of enlightenment uh, itself. That's the chitta vimoksha. And it's a liberation because these emotions are unbounded. They're called apamanyas. They're boundless. They have no end. They have no end because there's never an end uh, to living beings. So these uh, emotions never have and end, and you are completely at one uh, with that. There is no opposition, no resistance. You have this sense, if you like, of the transparency of your being in relation to all other uh, being. And, and love is just flowing naturally. You're not making any effort to do it. It's just happening, of course. There needs to be quite a bit of practice before you uh, get to that point. The embodiment of love from, is the darkani. We've heard that, that, that these symbols are multivalent. They have uh, an endless set of meanings. You can't reduce them to one meaning. But the red colour of the darkani is love. Intense maitri, intense metta, the great love. Or it's even described as the maharaga the great passion, usually raga is seen as something negative, but this is the maharaga, this is the passion, the compassion for all life. That's her blood red colour, uh, which she's ecstatic with, she's blushing with. And this darkani is in a mandala, a sacred circle. She's in these two uh, red 
triangles. These are the Dharmodaya, these, 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 these red triangles, this sort of star shape. This is the origin of all reality, according to this uh, tradition. And what's she doing? She's creating a Buddha field. She's creating a world uh, of liberation. She's inviting us into a world of liberation. This is what Buddhas do. This is what the Dharkanis of all the Buddhas do. The inspiration of all the Buddhas do. This is what all the Bodhisattvas do. They create worlds. Worlds like this that we can come into. Where we can experience directly. We're not experience. I hate that word experience. Where we can taste. Where we can relish. Where we can savour liberation. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 